Hello and welcome along to the Northern Agenda podcast, a look at politics through the lens of the north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a political journalist based in Leeds who keeps an eye out on what our MPs, councillors and mayors are up to so you don't have to. And I put it all together in a daily emo newsletter called The Northern Agenda, sums up what it all means for the north. On The Northern Agenda podcast, we like to take a bit more time to digest some of the big politics news stories of the week. And today, as we look at what Rishi Sunak has done for the North in his year as Prime Minister and the move to get asylum seekers out of hotels, I'm joined by two of my fellow journalists at Reach who follow how the decisions made at Westminster and locally play out in our region. Joseph Timmon, now becoming a bit of a regular on the podcast. He's political writer for the Manchester Evening News and back from his parental leave, manfully juggling the demands of a new baby with covering Merseyside politics. It's Liam Thorpe from the Liverpool Echo. Welcome back, guys. How's it going? Tiring. <laughs> I thought you might say that. You're looking you're looking pretty fresh. Our listeners won't be able to see this, but you, you're looking fresher than one, one might expect. A few people in my office have been um, sort of astounded at, uh, at how fresh I look. I think they expected me to look sort of, if you've seen Leonardo DiCaprio in The Revenant, uh, sort of dragging <laughs> myself through with like sort of icicles in my hair. Um, I don't feel fresh on the inside, but I'm, I'm manfully coping. You're keeping up up the facade. That's the that's 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 the all important thing, isn't it? Why did we talk about Rishi Sunak uh, first? It's been a year since he took over after eight weeks of chaos under the Liz Truss, Liz Truss premiership. He promised to bring an end to the chaotic politics of his predecessors and make long term decisions for the benefit of the country. Sadly for him, it doesn't look like the voters are impressed so far as under. Rishi Sunak's premiership, the Tories have lost a series of by-elections in what would previously have been considered safe seats like Selby and Ainsley in North Yorkshire. And he ends his first year in charge with his personal ratings on the slide and his party miles behind Labour. But in terms of what he's actually achieved, is there anything to write home about? Certainly the glossy social media video his team produced would make you think think so. But uh, Liam, you have written up a piece the Liverpool Echo, assessing his first year. And I wouldn't describe it as a uh, a glowing assessment. Just take us through the, the key points of what you what you wrote. You know me, Rob, I, um, I don't like to mince my words. Um, so yeah, as I as I came back to work, I thought, what, what would really get me going? It was a, an, it's a damning assessment of Rishi Sunak's year in charge. Um, I think I was chatting to a friend about this the other day, and he was sort of saying that as, as abject and sort of chaotic as Boris Johnson was, um, you sort of knew that that was what you were getting with Boris Johnson. I mean, and Liz Truss obviously was was campaigning for the Tory leadership on these, in my mind, just crazy policies that were set to do untold damage, and they did. I think the thing, the, th- the most disappointing thing with Sunak is, is that he, he kind of came up with this kind of moral pragmatism, you know, he's talking all about integrity and, and accountability and, and how that's what we need at this time after such chaos. And it's it's been nothing of the sort. It really hasn't been anything like that. And he's 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 appeared sort of desperate from the start. Really, uh, you know, I talked in the piece about how how much he's veered into the realms of conspiracy and populism. Um, we all remember the the the, the green uh, sorry the um, uh, seven bins meat tax. Effectively, you know, lies. Let's be honest. He, he was making up policies that never existed to to appeal to a certain section of society and, and his backbenches. Um, there's been there's been so much of that. I, I mean, I started the piece by talking about 
kind of seeing his real colours during that first leadership campaign when we all saw that video about how when he was Chancellor, he sort of was boasting to these uh, Tory members in Tunbridge Wells about how when he was Chancellor, he diverted funding away from deprived urban areas. We're told that he was talking about the Wirral specifically at that point, so that we had an interest in that and, you know, moving them towards uh, towards conservative voting areas, which is, you know, pork barrel politics, just plainly and simple. Um, so yeah, I think it's been. I think it's been deeply disappointing. I, th- I think I said he will be remembered as nothing more than a, a footnote at the end of a, a depressing era in in British politics, and I think that's true. There's, I don't see any possible way of him turning this around. Although Labour, as usual, are, are currently doing their best to to uh, tear apart their own polling lead, as I'm sure we'll talk about later on, um, and I'm sure Joe will talk about the HS2 situation. I think the thing I wanted to just say about HS2 is, I think that it's it really sums up. Um, the Tories' treatment of the North over the past, you know, 13 years in terms of not just not just the damage that they've done, but the, the, the broken promises. So they came up in, you know, 2014, I think it was when George Osborne first came and promised us the world, um, it stood in front of, you know, the, the Science and Industry Museum, promising not just HS2, but Northern Powerhouse Rail as well. Then they get all the votes that they need from that in, in 2015. Boris Johnson then repeats that in 2019, and um, yeah, it, and then they, they they come and tell us it's not happening in 2023. So it's it is a yeah. I think um, you know Andy Burnham was speaking about that, saying it kind of shows the contempt they have and the way that they did it as well, which I'm sure Joe will talk about because I know they didn't really consult with any local leaders despite being in Manchester at the time. So and the fact that he was stood there with you know long term decisions as emblazoned across his uh, the, the, the back of the hall, and this is a very short-termist decision that will have long-term impact on not just Manchester, but here in Liverpool, across, right across the north. It's a huge, a, hu- a very short-termist decision that will have huge ramifications, and hopefully, people won't forget that. That is definitely a valid criticism that he talks about long-term decisions, but a lot of the key things that he has done, you could interpret as a short-term panic measure to try and win over a small section yeah. of the population with, with, with HS2 being one of them because HS2 let's not forget was not in, in some parts of the country very unpopular and so he assumed I think he would get some credit for that and then that we'd all be thankful that money was being put into uh, other smaller schemes that would maybe be quicker to deliver um, but I don't think that's really how it's turned out and obviously the politics of coming to Manchester not consulting with anyone in Manchester or the North and then scrapping the biggest infrastructure project the city had ever seen. In a former railway, in a former railway station, no less. Yeah, absolutely. Standing in the in the old GMAX, the former railway station, and, and announcing that. I mean, Joe, just, is that the main thing that you think people in Greater Manchester will think of when they think of Rishi Sunak's premiership and how it affects Greater Manchester? Well, it's happened so recently that if you ask anyone on the street now, it's probably the first thing people would think of and it is such a big thing you know I mean let's not forget HS2 was being cut back gradually over time this was one sort of big axe to the line which means it won't reach the north at all now but um, I mean talk about long-term decisions you don't get much more of a long-term decision than building a high-speed rail network that's going to take decades to build it's going to take a lot of money a lot of commitment but you know the benefits will were supposed to be huge um, in 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 decades decades to come. So you know it doesn't get much more long term than that. So it, it did seem a bit ironic him standing in front of that banner, um, promising to to 
look at the long term. I, I think, yeah, it's it's the way that it was done that was a big thing. I mean, that's the way we approached our coverage. It was it was it was insulting. I mean, the Manchester Council leader said he was embarrassing Manchester, like for exactly the reason that that you guys have been saying. You know, come into Manchester after weeks of refusing to to say anything um but yeah as i said it was already scaled back like the the east coast branch was already cut off and only, only like a few months ago um politicians in manchester were arguing for an underground station rather than an overground station to be built at piccadilly that was the big fight and now there's not even going to be any line at all so i think yeah if you asked if you asked a lot of people that's the big thing but i, I think what you've got to remember is this government is elected on a mandate of Boris Johnson's levelling up agenda. Um, and that was eventually set out to us like a couple of years ago, what that means. Um, and I think for exactly the reasons that Liam was saying, sort of the, the comments he made during the leadership race um, about sort of taking money out of, of more deprived areas, it doesn't seem like um, believes in levelling up or maybe has a different idea of what levelling up means than what, Boris Johnson's government did. I mean, just speaking to people in Greater Manchester, um, certainly like the council leader in, in Manchester, when I spoke to her for that levelling up piece we did ahead of the um, uh, Conservative Party conference, her message was, we need to know what levelling up means under Rishi Sunak. And I think that's 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 a big thing. I mean, that's another long-term issue. Um, it's not something that necessarily sort of you'd expect them to have the answers to immediately it took them two years to come up with like a white paper setting out what what they mean by it but whether that's still um firmly on the agenda or whether Rishi Sunak has another version of it in mind I I think it's still about yeah I think um yeah the I mean one of the trends I've sort of noticed uh, during his premiership which is is very different to previous Tory governments like say for example George the George Osborne era where big cities like Manchester and Leeds uh, were at the very heart of it. Rishi Sunak seems to be really relegating the needs of cities quite uh, quite dramatically. And I think that's what his comments that you were talking about, Liam, in, in Kent were kind of uh, alluding to as well in some respects, like towns are now getting a lot more uh, preferential treatment, even more so than under Boris Johnson. And I think the thinking behind that is that those it's people in towns who are perhaps m- much more likely to vote Conservative and city voters are kind of written off as uh, as being Labour Labour strongholds. So I think that, that there's that there. I mean, the one that I, I was conscious when we were having this discussion, I wanted to try and strike a bit of a balance and try and search for some things, some positive things to say about the Sunak premiership. And I was watching his glossy video on Twitter, which is just a uh, rat-a-tat-tat of really quick fire phrases it just in text that's very hard to read it's like the equivalent of like one of those scenes in the west wing when they're walking really quickly uh and you can't really understand what they're what they're saying but i paused it a few times and read some of the things and there some of the 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 claims are for example crime crime falling fair enough but i think it's fair to say that crime has been falling for like the past 20 years so to say that it's fallen under his premiership doesn't really doesn't really say very much. Uh, One million homes built, uh, the video claims. That is uh, actually the figure that he hopes will be the case for the entire parliament, not not for his year in charge. So that's a bit misleading. And uh, record NHS funding, it also claims, but fails to mention that the NHS is missing pretty much every single target for the NHS, cancer, uh, A&E, all those things 
we're we're way behind and obviously you know strikes crippling the the health service on a regular basis so I've, I, I thought it was a good quote that summed it up in a, a another piece that I'd recommend as well as yours uh, Liam Tom McTague writing for the Atlantic said that uh, things outside this government's control which were improving anyway have continued to improve things which are within its grasp have got materially worse so I'm not sure there's uh, I think that, that's pretty damning isn't it uh, exactly so that that's Rishi Sunak uh, comprehensively uh, dealt with I think <laughs> Let's talk about Keir Starmer, because as, as you mentioned, Liam, he's had a bit of a difficult few days. Uh, the Conservatives, while they've been struggling in the last year, Labour have been able to build a pretty commanding lead in the polls without really announcing a huge amount or taking any big risks. But Keir Starmer is unusually under a bit of, bit of pressure this week over his stance on the escalating Israel-Hamas conflict, which has obviously seen thousands of people killed on both sides, really horrendous scenes playing out on our TV screens every night. Uh, And Keir Starmer gave an interview with LBC uh, a couple of weeks ago as Israel launched a huge offensive in Gaza. Uh, And Starmer said that he supported Israel's right to defend itself. And initially he backed cutting off power and water in Gaza. He, He since kind of attempted to row back on those comments a little bit, but it has prompted a huge... Uh, quite a lot of anger from within his own party. And like we've been reporting on it in the Northern Agenda recently, councillors have quit in places like Lancaster, uh, Lancashire. Uh, there have been angry letters sent from councillors. MPs have privately been putting Starmer under pressure. I mean, Liam, what have you been, what have you been hearing about the, the view of Labour uh, on this? Is it going to be a big problem for, for Starmer, do you think? Potentially, yeah. And I think that, you know, obviously he made those comments on LBC. He has then attempted to row back uh, a, a, a little bit. Um, then he, he obviously had the issue as well with the, the mosque visit that he did in Wales um, when they put out a statement saying that they felt that they were sort of de- deceived a little bit by the impression that was put across on social media. Um, his his Those initial comments have caused a lot of anger and his subsequent failure to kind of address them. Um, I think a lot of Labour MPs want him to be a lot stronger on calling for a ceasefire and calling for an end to, you know, the, the, the bombing of, you know, innocent people, innocent children. I spoke to um, a Labour MP from our region yesterday. And now this is not someone who is, you know, uh, very far on the left, who you would necessarily automatically think was 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 in this sort of camp. But and he he's he said to me that, you know, it was a very difficult meeting. It wasn't with Keir Starmer, it was with about 40 other Labour MPs talking about their frustration and, uh, I think that what one of the phrases he uses that we're that he's not Starmer is not showing like leadership on this. He's 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 sort of put himself on the back foot, and then he's kind of not being able, not catching up, not ahead of the curve. Um, so I, I was messaging around a couple of other MPs from our region just to see what the what the vibe was, and this was just just one other um, who said very frustrated, disappointed. He should have apologised and retracted the LBC statement instead of making uh, a lame explanation eight days later. Labour behind the curve, calling calling for a ceasefire. We've got councillors resigning. Um, it, he's being poorly advised. So it is, it, you know, and as I say, this is kind of across the spectrum, really. It's not just people who are sort of very clearly on the left. Um, I think that he's got a bit of a problem here. We've seen some polling about what this will could potentially do to the, the Muslim vote within Labour, which is obviously a, a big deal. 
And, you know, I've seen a few things on Twitter today saying it's like Labour do kind of have a habit of when they're on the brink of success, managing to kind of pull back from that. And, you know, um, that, that old phrase of, you know, rescuing victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, it's, you know, it, it's probably not, it's, it's not going to be enough to to turn around what's happened to the Tories, but it's a it's a big problem for Starmer this. And I think he needs to, anything he needs to deal with it quite quickly, really. Um, but we saw him put out a bit of a statement yesterday. He didn't go as far as calling for, for ceasefire because he has landed himself in a difficult position there. So we'll see what happens next. There were some reports yesterday about shadow cabinet members thinking of resigning, which would be which would be disastrous for him, really. Because all of this time, you know, people don't vote for divided parties and and he's been able to present Labour and the front bench as completely united. You saw the difference in the two conferences. It was Tories was a, a party at loggerheads, Labour was a party in sync with each other. So for this to happen now is really bad timing and he's got to get a hold of it quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I, I imagine there's quite a few Labour MPs saying a lot more behind the scenes. Uh, obviously, I don't want to sort of go too far in their in their criticism, but I, I noticed that uh, I think it's Yasmin Qureshi, who's Bolton South East MP, Shadow Women's and Equalities Minister. She asked at PMQs yesterday, how many more innocent Palestinians must die before this Prime Minister calls for humanitarian ceasefire, which sounds quite different from the Labour uh, the Labour position. So I guess that gives you an indication of the kind of um, what's being said behind closed doors. I mean, Joe, is this is this making ripples uh, where you are in Greater Manchester as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we had a councillor resign um, in Manchester, a Labour councillor resigning from the party and decided to, to stay on as an independent over this issue after the comments on LBC. Um, and the the... the context all of this although I did ask her whether you know whether the 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 local group making a statement would have sort of kept her in the party and it doesn't sound like it necessarily would her gripes were sort of with with Starmer and and, and what he said but there was sort of a bit of back and forth about the local group the local Labour group in Manchester and making its own statement about it my understanding is that that had to be approved at a higher level um, I don't know if it went right to the top, but um, it definitely wasn't sort of just a local decision about what could be said. So the message is definitely being managed carefully. I think w- whatever the Labour Party said, whatever Keir Starmer said on this situation would have upset some people, would have got some people very angry. But I think, um, I mean, given that he sort of retracted uh, or, you know, clarified what he meant, in that LBC interview, I think there's a recognition that he sort of went too far. And um, yeah, I th- it's definitely having an impact. I mean, there was a letter signed by um, Muslim count- Muslim Labour councillors across the country um, about the situation, um, calling for a ceasefire. And I, I, th- I think we had, I want to say dozens, we definitely had quite a few in Greater Manchester signing that Um there was talk of sort of a, a, a separate statement being made by the Muslim councillors in Manchester at one point, apparently, because um, they really wanted to get something out. And don't forget, I mean, talk about the, um, uh, um, I guess, like the example you gave with the Esmond Koreshi, a Muslim MP in, in, in Bolton, Afsal Khan in um, Gorton. Not only is he a Muslim MP, but he's got lots of Muslim constituents, lots of people who really care about this issue. He'll be under a lot of pressure to say something. Um, so it's yeah, it's it's definitely having an impact. I have heard that there have been some members um, quitting from the party, not 
not any other councillors in Manchester, but some members have quit the party because of this. Some obviously who would have not been sort of that involved that have just decided it's not worth continuing. But I have heard of a couple sort of more active members who've decided they've, they've had enough. Um, I've been told it's not significant numbers, but yeah, it's, it's definitely having an impact locally as well as sort of um, the issues that might be happening right at the top. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, let's talk about a different uh, story, equally sensitive, I guess, in its in its way. Um, Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, told Parliament uh, this week that uh, the first 50 hotels across the country which are housing asylum seekers are going to uh, close by the end of January uh, and asylum seekers will be moved elsewhere uh we know a few of the places where this is happening it's going to be places like uh, nosley in merseyside wigan in greater manchester i think rotherham in south yorkshire um obviously the the backdrop to this is that the cost to the taxpayer of housing people who are fleeing persecution in other countries housing them in hotels is is very high and uh this is a particular issue i think in in some parts of the north, uh, the northeast is housing uh, a ten times higher proportion of asylum seekers than the southeast and southwest. I think because the accommodation is cheaper uh, up in this part of the world, so it's very much a, a, an issue that has sort of regional, regional connotations. But what what's what's sort of going on behind the headlines, Jay? What have you been reporting this week? Well, quite a lot. I mean, as you say, we don't know about. Um, we don't have a list of hotels that are are closing, and we know that's. Um, but, but we know there are a couple in Greater Manchester, at least. Um, so Wigan, you mentioned Rochdale as well. We've heard a hotel there is closing. Um, there, there, there was a protest about the Wigan one um, uh, not too long ago. I think it was last month. Um, so yeah, this is quite a big issue. Um, just the, the use of hotels, I suppose, in itself, but. Aside from that, you've also got, um, as part of the government's plan to sort of clear the backlog of asylum applications, um, which, by the way, is still quite high. Uh, I don't think they're going to be able to clear it as fast as they want, but they have sort of set an aim of getting to a certain point by uh, at some point in December. I think it might be the end of December. What the um, Greater Manchester Combined Authority are saying is that they're expecting in the couple of in the next couple of months. Um, Two to 3,000 households, my understanding will be mostly sort of individuals, um, will be getting a decision on their asylum application. That means when they get that decision, I think a lot of them, my understanding is, will be positive decisions. That means that then they'll have, in theory, a month to leave their current accommodation, whether that's a hotel or um, sort of other kind of housing that the Home Office is sort of paying for. Um, and they become the council's responsibility after that. Um, in some cases, we've been told about, and it's and it's been said in Parliament, that um, they're getting as little as seven days notice to leave their accommodation. Um, the immigration minister did address that and said that they get a, a sort of another letter seven days before, but they are told initially when they get their decision. I've, I've heard from a lot of charities working with asylum seekers in Greater Manchester that they are sometimes just getting a week's notice. Um, issues with documentation coming through at the right time, you know, not being made aware of decisions. So the, the upshot of all of this is there's going to be two to 3,000 households um, needing somewhere to live uh, in, in the next coming months, adding to the existing pressures on housing uh, in Greater Manchester. Um, so it's something that councils are definitely worried about and they're not sort of turning around and saying, you know, you know, they're still 
very much publicly saying we're welcoming refugees, we're welcoming sort of asylum seekers and we take our responsibilities seriously. But this sort of process where the second that they get a decision, there's this countdown to which um, by the end, the councils have sort of full responsibility for housing when, when the system's already a lot under a lot of pressure um, is, is, is definitely causing a lot of anxiety um, among local authorities. And, and obviously, let's not forget, I mean, some people might end up homeless. So, you know, I've, I've heard rough sleeper numbers are going up. Anecdotally, some of those people apparently will be asylum seekers. I don't know how much of a contributing factor it is, but you know, that's the real human cost here. Some people might end up being homeless. Yeah. So it sounds like they're solving one problem, at least in the short term, but potentially creating a whole load of, whole load of other problems that they'll have to address. That is really interesting. Now, I thought we'd just finish with something uh, a little bit uh, lighter and more positive. Uh, as we're talking today, there's been a big event to highlight the impact, sort of financial and otherwise, on uh, Liverpool of the Euro- Eurovision Song Contest, which, as we all remember, came to Liverpool uh, this summer. Massive two weeks uh, in the city's cultural calendar. Uh, and it turns out it resulted in a £55 million boost to the area's economy and uh yeah we're, we're sort of digesting now what, what what that means and i guess the lessons that we can draw from it but um i mean liam you you i remember we we, we spoke to you on the podcast about this uh a few uh, previously and it's i guess it shows that events like this even if they cost quite a lot of money to organize like i think like you know overall several million pounds worth of taxpayers money will have been spent on this like it has uh, you know the the net impact, even if you just look at it from a financial point of view, is is really positive. Yeah, I mean, I remember you know you always get people, don't you, who are kind of casting doubt on it at the time that Liverpool bid for it, and then and then as somewhat against the uh, the sort of uh, expectations, um, won it because obviously defeating bigger cities like Manchester and and, and I think Glasgow was was um, probably the favorite for a while. So it was it was an amazing moment but you straight away got people saying, well, you know, how much is this going to cost? Is it going to be worth it? Are we going to make it back? I was always of the opinion that it, it was an absolute no-brainer that um it would it would, you know, bring in an enormous amount both in terms of direct funding in terms of the reputation of the city in terms of visitors, the visitor economy. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the council only ended, ended up putting a couple of million in. The BBC obviously fund a great amount of it, city region as well. Um, but it, that all of that has been absolutely dwarfed by this fifty-five million pound figure that's been calculated in terms of the the boost to the Liverpool city region economy. Um, you've got they've, they've reckoned three hundred and thirty thousand people uh, engaged with the the Euro Festival that was happening in the two weeks around Eurovision. It's it's you know it's huge numbers of people, and I think the the, perhaps the cost that you can't totally weigh up, you can you can weigh up the, the the sort of raw data. But for some of those businesses that had such a, an unbelievably tough time during COVID and after COVID, to to kind of have that boost and have that kind of platform to rebuild, you know, their business, Liverpool particularly Liverpool, but the region in general, its entire renaissance from the dark days of the nineteen eighties has been built around hospitality, tourism, visitor economy, which is which is huge. And that was just, you know, overnight pretty much brought to its knees by COVID and the, the subsequent lockdowns. So I think for the boost that we needed as a city, it's almost immeasurable. 
But if you are going to put some numbers to it, 55 million is a, a pretty decent one, to be honest. And, you know, I think I wrote at the time that Liverpool needed another moment. You know, when people talk about the 2008 year as European capital of culture, that was kind of the the culmination of Liverpool rebuilding its its reputation and its economy through the from the 80s through the 90s into 2008. And then we were wait, almost wait, we've had obviously a, a difficult time of austerity, of cuts, of the pandemic. The council's obviously had its corruption investigations and all of that. And we needed another big moment. And I think that Eurovision provided that. It was spectacular. You know, I, I, I'll never forget covering that event, covering the days before. Unbelievable amounts of just happiness and joy and energy in the city. And I think also, you know, Liverpool showing that what, what for whatever difficulties it's going through, it really knows how to put on a hell of a party and it always will do. So I think it's been it's been a roaring success and it's great to see these numbers now. And and yeah, the world knows knows how, how good Liverpool is at putting on a party once again. Yeah. All we need to do now is win the the Eurovision Song Contest at some point and then we can have it back in this country again and experience the joy all over again. Yeah, I think I mean, that might be that easier was said than done. That was the only disappointment, wasn't it? That I thought that was a, a decent little bop from May Muller, actually. And um, she came so, so low down, but... I remember being, one of my favourite memories is being in the um, in the kind of fan park as the as the final was being played, and the the guy from Iceland who had the oh, was it Finland? Sorry, had the absolute anthem, and when that came on, and everyone was going absolutely mental for it, and then we were sort of filming all their reactions. It was just great, and you know, one one I guess one last thing to say is that you know Liverpool was uh, a city that benefited massively from being part of the European Union where the kind of government funding had stopped coming into the city, European money came in. And I think there's a sort of nice irony, really, that when we really needed another moment, we kind of turned to Europe again. And it was Europe that provided that because this is a very European city and always will be, really. Liam, thank you so much. And Joe Timmon from the Manchester Evening News. Thanks, guys. Nice to speak to you. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, See you next week. Bye-bye.